Hello and welcome to the Equal Business Podcast. I'm Zafira Zain, a correspondent at Equal Business, and for today's podcast, I'll be investigating the impact of extreme heat on cities in Asia. With heat waves expected to become more common and intense due to climate change, more people around the world will be affected by deadly temperatures. As part of this year's Changing Course campaign, where Equal Business charts the climate change story from Asia all the way to the Arctic. I explore how extreme heat and growing demand for energy interacts in urban centers in the world's most populous region, and find out how city dwellers in Asia are experiencing heat in a world facing climate catastrophe. I want to find out how are people coping as extreme heat descends on their city, with burgeoning cities providing little respite from sizzling temperatures. Which segments of the city population are most at risk to the impacts of heat? These are just some of the questions I seek to answer in this special report on urban heat. In this podcast, however, I'll be speaking to two climate experts who have done significant work on urban heat in Asia to find out why higher temperatures are particularly stifling in cities and how cities in Asia are responding and adapting to the heat. One of them is Anjali Jaiswal, founding director of the India Climate and Energy Program at the Natural Resource Defense Council. An international environmental advocacy group based in the United States. As part of the NRDC, Anjali collaborates with local partners in India to advance energy efficiency, promote solar energy, and protect communities from the impacts of climate change. The NRDC is known for its work with various organizations and the local government in rolling out an extreme heat plan, heat action plan. The NRDC is known for its work with various organizations and the local government in rolling out an extreme heat action plan for the city of Ahmedabad after an extreme heat wave claimed over a thousand lives in 2010. Also with me here today is Winston Chow, an associate professor of humanities at Singapore Management University and a lead author of the sixth assessment report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. An expert on climate change and urban heat. Winston is also the principal investi- investigator of Cooling Singapore, a research project dedicated to v- developing solutions to address the urban heat challenge in Singapore. Welcome, Anjali and Winston, and thank you for lending your thoughts to this discussion on extreme heat in Asia. Maybe Anjali, you can start us off. Extreme heat has long been an invisible problem, even though its effects on human health is detrimental. Perhaps you can tell us more about what the impact of extreme heat is on people in Asia. Extreme heat is a huge problem around the globe, and especially in Asia. Heat waves are becoming more intense and more frequent in South Asia and around the world, fueled by climate change. And heat waves—they aren't just inconvenient. Heat can kill. Climate change is fueling more and more extreme heat, and we just saw that this summer across the globe. Mm-hmm. Globally. Fourteen of the fifteen hottest years ever recorded have occurred since two thousand. That tells you that warming is happening now. It is happening in our century. What we know is that temperatures in places like South Asia are increasing much more. You know, you hear about a temperature increase of, of two degrees Celsius, right?、Mm-hmm. But what we see in the projections, what the science tells us, is that in Asia and South Asia, that increase will be. Five degrees or six degrees. Now, why it's really important in hot places, in humid places, is because that difference in degrees makes a huge difference on the human body.、Mm-hmm. So it's already hot in Los Angeles, right? It's forty-five degrees 
We've seen temperatures touch 50 degrees. We didn't think we would see them go that high this soon. They mm-hmm. already are. But what happens to a human body is that, one is, we live in climate zones, so we're used to a certain amount of temperature, a certain range of cold and heat. But as temperatures rise, our body's ability to respond to those higher temperatures severely declines. This is especially true for the elderly and anyone who's immunocompromised, children. What can happen in extreme heat, right, is severe dehydration, and then ultimately you have major organ failure in the body. Mm-hmm. However, no one should be dying from extreme heat because it is entirely preventable. Over to you, Winston. How are cities particularly affected by heat? Cities are known to reach killer temperatures faster than their outskirts, and this is called the urban heat island effect. Can you tell us more about the heat island and its connection to climate change? Simply put, the urban heat island is a phenomenon where temperatures in cities or parts of the city are warmer than uh, the areas outside of the city. So if you look at air temperatures or surface temperatures, generally, Uh, urban areas will have a higher degree of warmth. Uh, The link between the urban heat island or the UHI phenomenon for short uh, and climate change is somewhat different. Um, People seem to conflate that the UHI equals to climate change. That's not really the case. It's a separate phenomenon. uh, From the the causes of these two phenomena are different. For Mm -hmm. climate change is it arises from uh, changes in uh, greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere as seen by carbon dioxide Mm -hmm. Uh, and also in in terms of changes from uh, land use and land cover so if you've got massive deforestation of rainforest for instance that adds more carbon into the atmosphere so the climate change that we know from global warming is a global scale phenomenon For the urban heat island, it's more local scale, it's more regional in nature. It depends on the size of the city. And it arises from replacing the previous uh, rural or natural landscape. In the case of Singapore, it, historically, Singapore used to have uh, tropical rainforests or coastal mangroves. That's the natural landscape before uh, before. 1965, before Sir Stanford Raffles came in, before um, uh, Sang Nila Utama, for instance, came into Singapore. Uh, But once you replace all that with concrete, with asphalt, with glass surfaces, these materials trap in a lot of heat. They uh, They absorb radiation from the sun during the daytime, they store it, and then at night they release it. And that, uh, if for instance, you compare these surfaces, these artificial man-made surfaces with the capacity to store and release heat slowly compared to your grass surfaces, your tree surfaces, or your water surfaces, um, they keep in more radiation and they release it slower at night. So that causes your heat island. So that's one factor that causes the increased temperatures from the UHI. The other factor is that in cities, you have a lot of um, cars, you have a lot of lobbies, you have a lot of trucks, you have a lot of buildings with air conditioning. And this is a big problem in Asia. Everywhere you go because of the tropical or the equatorial climate that we have, especially in Southeast Asia, you see a lot of air conditioning. And air conditioning, what it does simply is that it takes the heat from indoors and pushes it outside. So this additional uh, waste heat or what we call anthropogenic heat is another factor that causes the increased uh, temperatures in cities 
relative to the rainforest or relative to the mangroves or relative to the non-urban slash rural surroundings. Why is urban heat so important to understand as Asia faces greater urbanization and population growth? while the region still works to mitigate and adapt to the impacts of climate change? That's, uh, that's a very key question. We are concerned with the heat island not because of climate change. We are concerned with the heat island because it adds on to the problems and the impacts and the risks from climate change. The best example we can see directly is that um, the urban heat island is best observed at night if you look at air temperatures. If you, at night, let's say in Singapore, where, well, where we are at right now, if you go to where there's still rainforest in the central catchment area, uh, the temperatures at night, close to midnight, could be about 23, 24 degrees Celsius. Uh, if we are, if you could cut yourself in two, hypothetically, and put half of yourself in in uh, Bukit Timah and the other half here in Orchard Road, close to where the SFU campus is, uh, you'll find that the temperatures can be a good six, maybe seven degrees C warmer under ideal conditions. So it's 23 degrees Celsius, which is like the temperature of most air conditioning, uh, air conditioning units in Singapore. But in downtown in Orchard Road, it could be 30 degrees Celsius. So that's a very significant difference. So at night, when you've got this bigger difference, it leads to certain impacts, most of which is um, the direct impact for people who, let's say, don't have air conditioning. Let's say we move away from Singapore or someplace else that doesn't have this, uh, the vast amounts of uh, cool indoor environments we have. Uh, the human body is exposed to a warmer temperature for a longer period at night. At night, we, like, we, we sleep at night. Our body needs that time to uh, recuperate and to, you know, uh, to, to recuperate physically. Uh, and it's very difficult to do so when it's thermally uncomfortable. So there's a big issue of heat stress that happens. Um, it, it, this heat stress happens on top of whatever uh, temperature changes from um, global warming. Anjali, a question for you. What are the impacts of heat that you've personally seen on a city? Perhaps you can talk about your work in Ahmedabad, India, and more broadly, how cities are responding to the heat. Asian cities have rapid urbanization and development happening. And heat island effect compounds that factor. That's because of the density in the cities where we see uh, heat higher in areas compacted by climate change and seeing communities suffer. Um, so that is driving action. Uh, on cities and national levels to act on climate change, um, you know, again, as I said, what we've seen this summer and last summer, record-breaking temperatures across the globe. In 2010, there was a devastating heat wave in India, in, particularly in the city of Ahmedabad, where we started the work. Mm-hmm. And the Fun community hospital there was inundated. The neonate ward, which is, you know, where the babies are, the infants, was located on the top floor. There was a brick building with a black tar roof. So it created an oven-like temperature, right, where that section of the hospital was hotter than the rest of the hospital. And of course, there was no air conditioning. So one very great doctor that we work with, um, we're still working with her, you know, she said, we need to protect the babies. And that was a really big wake-up call for the city and city officials and civil society. So their role has been tremendous. And then, as you probably saw, there was a 2015 heat wave. Mm-hmm. Also, again, what we saw in places like Karachi in Pakistan is that the, um, the morgues closed. They couldn't accept any more bodies. Mm-hmm. And that's a public health crisis. When 
when you have the most clothing from extreme heat. So what you've seen is, is because of these wake-up calls, a big reaction by city leaders, by civil society, the national government, what we've seen in India, for example, is the National Development Management Agency, the Disaster Management Agency is taking action on heat action plans and scaling them in both rural and urban areas. We see cities taking action, physicians, doctors really moving to work to protect people from extreme heat. How are urban planners and policymakers in Asia protecting residents from rising temperatures? Anjali, can you tell us more about maybe how these heat action plans have been implemented across India? There are um, communities across Asia. I know that like Shanghai has a plan. I'm sure Singapore is working on one. Mm-hmm. But what we've really seen is in South Asia, in India, an emergence of what's called a heat action plans. These heat action plans are city-led programs. They're designed for um, municipal corporations that have limited funds. And they're designed for the South Asian context. So what we have is um, many of the cities, it started in the city of Ahmedabad, but several cities are working on heat action plans. So the heat action plans have three major components. Um, one is an early warning system, because communities need to know when the heat is coming. So the city sends out, the, the city is monitoring um, between the 15th of March to um, middle of July of what all of the temperatures are, right? Because the monsoon comes in India in July. Um, and I mean, they're regularly monitoring, but this they're monitoring very carefully of what the temperatures are in their city. And when they see them crossing over a certain threshold, they'll send out an early warning system. Mm-hmm. The alert system notifies the medical officers, the major departments, power, emergency, everyone to gear up and to get into action to respond to heat. So what this means is when your elderly neighbor or, you know, your aunt who's older is um, is not feeling well, that she can immediately, you know, uh, have a neighbor that's checking on her, or also there's an ambulance service that's really close by that can come and take care of her and save her life. It's also about sending out the second component of it is community outreach and communication, mm-hmm. especially to vulnerable communities, low-income communities, people who might live in, in slums in part of Asia, where they, there is no access to air conditioning or limited access, right? Maybe there's a fan. Mm-hmm. But saying, like, heat can kill, and here's what you can do to stay hydrated, to um, not exert yourself during peak hours. Right, to um, stay in the shape, to see a doctor if you're not feeling well. Um, so those programs have worked very, very well. The uh, third component is capacity building in multiple ways with, uh, within the community, and providing things like water stations, or, you know, cooling at temples, having the gardens open up longer so that people have measures to take on. And the new components have been added in the last few years, at least in three cities that are working on this, are cool roof initiatives. Mm-hmm. As you know, white roofs and cool roofs can work to keep indoor temperatures cooler. So there's an effort on municipal buildings as well as low-income communities to put cool roofs on those and have citywide programs as well as um, laws that require that. Winston, what measures can cities take against the heat? From your experience, are there any examples from Singapore that we can learn from? 
Uh, there are many measures. Uh, I, I work as a principal investigator for the Cooling Singapore project and our initiative we have online, coolingsingapore.sg. Uh, we've compiled a list of uh, um, methods grouped along I think six or seven categories. We have about 80, more than 80 approaches to do that. Uh, ranging from efficient transportation to reduce that anthropogenic heat that I was talking about or uh, better building design to allow for for neighborhoods that have the capacity to cool naturally. Uh, they're not so cramped up close together with tall concrete buildings that trap heat and retain the heat island for a longer period of time. So we've got a proper design, you can allow the, the radiation from the surface to occur at a much greater rate to cool. There are different ways of reducing the vulnerability to heat from the heat island from, or from climate change. If you have the resources to do so, you can do like what Singapore is doing. If you don't have the resources to do so, you can then pick look at what your strengths are, not look at what the existing community has as strengths and then develop a action plan accordingly. What is your favorite cooling strategy or measure that can be taken to mitigate the impact of heat on a city? I'm a very big fan of natural or nature-based solutions to any sort of environmental problems. Uh, I am a big fan of greenery. I'm a big supporter of looking at uh, how green spaces from your small you know strips of uh, street trees for instance or rooftop gardens and green walls which Singapore has uh, increasingly implemented over uh, in recent years uh, or the, the best way to deal with the heat island is make sure that you have large urban parks that should be appropriately distributed or put into place within uh, residential neighborhoods or commercial neighborhoods or industrial neighborhoods. Green spaces are tremendous, um, I would say, solutions that reduce the heat island. Um, simply put, because they behave like rural, so they behave like forests, they behave like rural areas. Uh, they cool faster at night. They don't absorb that much heat during the day. Um, they also uh, transpire. So there's a lot of evapotranspiration that occurs in green spaces to help reduce uh, the radiant heat that you feel. There's, there's also a problem during uh, heat waves or heat island events. To round up this insightful discussion, I'll pose the same question to Anjali. Anjali, what is your favorite strategy to protect city dwellers from extreme heat? It's getting that warning out, getting those alerts out to the community and planning for those ahead of time. That is the key. Because from the early warning systems, you have the communication within the government, you have the communication out to the community, the capacity building. In order to have those early warning systems, you have to have, you know, the temperatures coming in, you have to have uh, city action watching them. But the early warning systems are the key to saving lives. Nicely said. Thank you, Anjali and Winston, for joining me on the Eco Business Podcast. I hope our listeners enjoyed tuning in. To read the full special report, Can Asia Cities Keep It Cool? Visit our website at www.eco-business.com. Thanks for listening.